You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. Welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerd. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. As always, I'm joined by <laughs> Alex and Cap from the Something Good for You podcast. Yo, yes, yo. sir. And we have been trudging right along with the uh, the history of Kiss album by album, year by year. Not as experts, but as just fans to nerd out and geek out on this stuff. We're rolling uh, into the Alive Two album. Yep. Yes. This this album always kind of held a little bit of mystification for me because Mom had a live and she had a good bit of the solo I mean uh, studio records. A live two was never one she had, so that she even had a live three, but a live two was not in our catalog, so it was always shrouded in a bit of mystery for me. It took a while for me to hear that record. Huh, that's interesting. This was the uh, this was a big part of me getting into Kiss when I was a teenager. Uh, the the ones that were uh, visited the most. On vinyl were uh, hotter than hell, alive one, alive two. I want to say love gun. I think love. Those were the big four in yeah. uh, my friend's collection. But alive two was probably uh, visited the most just because of you know the packaging and uh, the inside. Because to me, with the visuals and the live versions of the songs on uh, this album, this is the definitive Kiss album for me. Well, I, even though it's a live album, but you know, but uh, because of the aesthetic and everything too, this is like. One of my favorite uh, things they've ever done. Yeah, this is a this was a a big record for for sure. Uh, this was the peak. I yeah. think this really symbolized the absolute peak of Kiss. Whatever I'd say, if uh, you have to Kiss have to Mania, se- yeah. If I have to sell anybody on Kiss, I just say find a, co- a vinyl copy of this album with all the. Uh, booklets and all that stuff well well, let's get let's get uh let's start peeling some of this back um the final date of the love gun tour was in fort worth i think didn't we say we talked about this in the last episode it was september 5th 1977 so uh they're only going to have a couple of months downtime here but um there, the Alive 2 shows have already been recorded at the Forum in L.A. in August, the 26th, 27th, and 28th. However, uh, the first attempt was shows recorded in Japan the mm-hmm. the previous spring. Uh, and April 2nd. April 2nd. Um, and I, I, the question I have is, okay, we know they brought Eddie Kramer in to you know, record these shows. And that that those recordings have been, I guess, bootlegged, and they're very similar Mm -hmm. to the Alive Two final. Uh, What I want to know is how much effort and time was spent 
in those recordings because obviously they do their doctoring after mm-hmm. the fact. Yeah. Which is, you know, we've talked about this already with the live. It's commonplace to doctor these live recordings. But you don't see or hear a lot about that, you know. No, I do remember uh, maybe, geez, time to keep slipping away. I'm sure it's closer to 10 years at this point, eight or 10 years um, on the KISS FAQ message boards. Uh, someone, it was when really high quality versions of the Lost Alive 2 from Budokan mm-hmm. uh, was released. And when listening to it, you could hear the beginnings of the Alive Sweetens on it you could hear like because there are tons of bootlegs from this show that are already out there so there's we can draw comparisons we can do a b comparisons from like old soundboard recordings versus the supposed lost alive too and yeah crowd noise was a lot louder guitars were a little beefier and i and i feel like what they've described later on and it may be revisionist hearing uh revisionist uh history but that they were going to release this record as a Japan exclusive. Okay, yeah. And that, that they wanted Alive 2 to not feature any songs right. from the previous, previous album. Yeah. Now, that, that the, yeah, I, I was aware of that. I knew, I've heard that before, but, um, you know, I don't know how serious of a plan that was Me at that neither. point. Because but, but your point exactly. I mean, they did deal with Eddie Kramer with all of it, so they had to have been at least semi-serious about oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. These and were deemed unusable because of what? <clears throat> I think that's the part we're kind of we trying no to figure one, out. I can't figure it out because, they're. I mean, they don't sound like dull live performances no they're they're on fire and two of the tracks are going to end up on a live too right yeah, the exact versions the exact versions. so uh the first attempt was aborted um now the idea at the end of this love gun tour is to give the band a break right but uh they're not going to have much of a break at all. I think I a mean, break consists of two days off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they've recorded these shows at the Los Angeles Forum. And uh, some some information about these shows, I think, that are interesting and, you know, possibly apocryphal. Who knows? Uh, the... Uh, there's just a lot going. I mean, this is the peak. Um, it's promoted by a guy named David Forrest and his production companies called fun productions this is the same guy that did the anaheim stadium show the year prior okay and um, he's trying to go big with this and three nights at this point i mean this is this is this would be huge if they had sold out all three nights they do not um this will become more of a problem Straight away, uh, just but uh, just an aside stuff that was going on. I I think it's fun to note uh, a lot of the uh, early LA punk rock scene are in attendance, including the Germs, the guys Darby Crash and Pat Smear, who of course is now the guitar uh, guitar player for Foo Fighters. Pat Smear, um, Belinda Carlisle of the Go Go's, and possibly maybe uh, one or two more of those members. Um, just the big scenesters that have popped up in books. Um, and I always find it funny when you go back and kind of trace those because, you know, 
the the modern day cool kids. They want to crap all over Kiss, and, and they don't but realize they love that, all you those know, people that are in that attendance. I like mm-hmm. reading these books and hearing how. But these kids that were the early LA kids were like the post glam, you know, glam damage kids. So you have like the scenesters like Trudy and Mary Rat and Trixie Treat, and uh, I'm not sure if pleasant geeman was there or if uh, gerber was there whoever these you know all these people that you read about yeah. chucky star they're, they're all intermingled and it would make sense but mm-hmm. i just think it's interesting that you know who these people are and what they would go on to achieve in their own ways yeah and 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 in some cases they seem to have been afforded greater quote-unquote credibility you know but um i was reading last night just recently just i was trying to research some of this stuff and uh the girl Trudy that was the kind of the scene queen was talking about her and Alice Bag uh, meeting at a Kiss concert, both wearing Ace Frehley makeup. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you know, that's cool stuff to me. The Runaways, of course, I'm sure were there mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Uh, if if all is to be believed, again, this is all alleged. Uh, Bill of Coins offering to manage the Runaways, provided they drop. Kim Fowley. Oh. oh, and he's he's offering it. He's dangling fifty thousand dollars over their head, and he's like, "I'm not going to pay another fifty grand to make Bill uh, make Kim Fowley go away." Yeah, you know, which is interesting because you know Kim Fowley through a back channel has provided, uh, you know, at least one song for Kiss that mm-hmm. they're playing in their set on this show. Um, they obviously though. they obviously don't go for it. I don't know the story behind all that. And again, who knows? That's as with all things LA, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it is kind of fun to go down that little mental rabbit hole, though. If Casablanca had signed Runaways, what would they have done with them? That because they would have been I the mean, only, really the only second rock and roll act Casablanca had. Well, they had Angel. Yeah, I know. And, so they're really they, the second I, rock and roll act on the and, label, and, and but, but as a band with a gimmick too, kind of sort of. Yeah, you know? they were more gimmick, and they, you know, and that's more up Neil Bogart's alley because mm. ah, now I've got something I can package and promote. Exactly. Yeah, I think you know who it's. Who knows? That's one of those weird you what know? ifs. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the end, it all worked out for at least one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. one of them that it worked out for. She ended up getting signed to Boardwalk Records, which was Neil Bogart's next record label. Oh, okay. He's the one that signed her. Interesting. I didn't know that was uh, who connected, but yeah, I knew it was Boardwalk. So it's just interesting to see the kind of the germination of all this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one more of the uh, the cool kids, is completely opposite end of the U.S., but always still get a kick out of finding out that like the Ramones wound up being friends with like people like Peter Chris and would like go out to shows and shit like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the snobbery existed on that level as it did on the fan level. That makes sense. Um, and again, I, I don't know that all these people that I just named were there for a fact, but it seems I've read that and seen that in other places. And it also just seems highly likely. Yeah, and. Um, but I think that this is the, the, the would have been a breaking point for that audience, for that segment of the audience, because Kiss is about to go full bore, almost, you know, quote unquote, kid friendly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I still- think it's just right at the precipice of this oh, right now. Totally. Even when, like, on the cover of the album, it's, you know, Gene covered in blood. We're still, there's still plenty of darkness going well, on. Yeah. But they've also released their comic book now. That's true. And- but would you say the comic book was maybe geared. I'll- so. 
let's actually think about this for a minute because you know to peel back the curtain our next few episodes are going to be very 78 centric so we're right. going to kind of play in this pool for a while but i wonder if people end up conflating promoting to children and promoting to teenagers because it almost feels like they were really trying to get a hone in on the teenage market well, not necessarily the kid okay market. yeah, yeah. But it, it, it ended up by default going that way i mean it i don't think many teenagers are going to be real interested in buying a, a kiss doll I don't that know, point, play with their I, don't, I think now no i don't i think by that at that era you know by the time you got to be like 10 or 12 it's like i don't play with toys you know yeah, there was that so. kind of yeah you're you know, right especially that collector America. market didn't come back up until 80s. another 10 years yeah. so uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure there were kids that did. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. But you know what I mean, generally. The, the overarching as a whole. At one of these shows, at least, there's a story. And again, I don't know that this is a true story. I've never seen any evidence of this. But it's been it's been brought up enough times to give it a, you know, a kernel of truth, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Peter Chris is under the weather. Mm-hmm. Quote unquote. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to the point where he's like, I can't play, I can't play. Mm-hmm. And the opening band, as we've talked about for this run, was Cheap Trick. Yep. And I, that's, there was some last minute finagling, and supposedly they had recruited Bunny Carlos to sit in to play the set with him. That that hey, I'd be very if that's true. I'd to be the very point curious where it seems like it. I've read somewhere that they actually had him kind of like half-assed suited up wow which would makes no sense to me he whatsoever. was rather big well it's not i don't know that. what suit would have fit that's well a that and b <laughs> i mean were they gonna paint his face i mean none of that makes sense if it even happened at all because yeah. we it didn't happen uh, uh according to the story uh peter is uh found to recover quite quickly after being administered a intravenously injected boost of vitamin <laughs> right now, he would talk about that in his book uh, i just got through reading that especially about uh this particular time he would uh talk about all the shit that it took for his uh joints to not hurt while he was playing that's what yeah. he would talk about his He's, joints would be hurting yeah, the whole time i don't I mean, but of course i feel like that was more of a reunion tour issue than a love gun issue well uh, but time, <laughs> he, no. he bitches and complains a lot in his fucking book <laughs> well, you know the, the the famous story is always that you know by this point he was uh completely wrapped in prima donna behavior and they would have to go and kind of physically remove him from his hotel room and the and you know yeah. at, the, at the point to where it was such an ob, uh, a common occurrence to see him being wheeled out through like a lobby or an airport and wrapped in robes and some and, James Brown shit up in here glasses <laughs> on and and towel around his head and of course Matt you know something covering his face that the the nickname the Ayatollah Chris Cola yep. yeah became yeah became the, the running think, gag with the road crew. I think I've heard that from every member that's kind of talked about that era. And, and from, you know, and I mean, I, you know, again, this is all he said, she said stuff. But I mean, the reputation was that Peter was not easy on the road crew or easy on anybody, really. He was mm-hmm. high maintenance. But to his admission in his book, I mean, wasn't he pretty much, he was coked up all the time yeah and he of course and cocaine all that. has that i'm sure effect and i mean i think he was probably already kind of a high-strung emotional 
emotionally driven kind of guy anyway. Yeah. You definitely you, get a vibe from that. And, and I say intravenous, like we, we say that kind of har, har, har. I don't think he was ever known to use intravenous drugs. So no, I, I, no. I don't want to infer that. I just, I just think we are it's kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so this show is promoted by fun productions. The guy's name is David Forrest. And, um, again, he was responsible for the Anaheim, which was a titanic success for them mm-hmm. uh, the year prior. That show, though, it should be noted, we and we talked about this before in the previous episode, it was a loaded show. They had, I think, Ted Nugent and Uriah Heep and Bob Seger. Stacked. It was a stacked show. Flo and Eddie were, I don't know if they played, but they were acting as MCs. That's just Time Machine fucking... <laughs> So, Glory. Uh, Chris Lent, the tour accountant, yep, who's he's only been with them about a, a year now, a little over a year. He gets tipped off cryptically by Bill Coin before the first show. Um, that something was wrong. He he didn't quite put his finger on it. He's like, you know, double check the receipts or something like this. And, yeah, which was like par for the course. He's like, well, uh, uh, okay. The guarantee was $60,000 per show, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure was a pretty big sum back then. That's a pretty big sum to me right now. (laughs) (laughs) That, of course, would be a total of $180,000. It'd be close to $200,000 for three nights' work. Not bad. Yeah. But for this to succeed, all three shows had to sell out. And, of course, they do not. Mm. Now... Rather than enter into litigation and risk getting nothing at all, which I doubt they would have, uh, they they agree to settle for you know the proverbial undisclosed sum, mm-hmm. probably pennies on the dollar door deal. This I think sinks fun productions. I don't. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I'm pretty sure this pretty much there was just really nothing else after that. And wow. Uh, and, you know, this, of course, would prove the first big fissure. You know, I think it would be the first time that the guys in KISS would be looking at Bill Coin sideways. Mm-hmm. Even though, technically, it's not his fault. And this is probably why they, and I'm only guessing here, they don't go into litigation with this guy, David Forrest, because that would just all of a sudden run into the trades. Mm-hmm. And it's going to reflect, regardless if it's the promoter's fault, for over, you know, he just overreached. Yeah. But then again, you know, Bill Coin agreed to it. They all thought it was, you know, sure, of course they'll do three nights. Of oh, course. Yeah. Uh, but if it goes in the tra- it's going to blow back and look bad on Kiss. Mm-hmm. It's going to reflect how not- much of a failure that was because perception leads. And would you say that this is probably the first even semi-failure cl- kind of connected to Kiss or a coin since a live hit? As I don't think they've really had any well, other. They've skirted it. I think they've just. I think they've always tried to run a little bit harder and a little bit faster than they really were. Uh, than they really were fueled for. Mm-hmm. They were just all about taking chances. And it was still. They're still taking some big chances here because again, it's all about perception here. And you know, a three night stand at at the you know one of the most celebrated arenas in the country. I mean, we're talking about it today. There, you know, it's it's a it's a. Yeah, it, but they didn't sell out. But I think people still to this day think they did, and it's still spoken of as a sellout. Because it's the but perception. That, that third show struggled. Um, and 
it caused a lot of fallout. Like I said, they 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 had some uh, legal wranglements there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Fun looks back on, or the guys at Fun look back on, back on this very fondly, seeing this uh, image <laughs> yeah. in record stores and stuff like that. Well, I mean, you know, that's the big time kind of concert promoting was always sort of like the domain of kind of these, you know, fringe characters that like, to, that like to gamble. I was going to say, know. it's just gambling. And and they and back then, you know, even now, it's it's about averages. You're, you're betting on mm-hmm. certain shows to do good, and that will help lift up the smaller lift up ones. The smaller ones and, and it keeps you all going, you know. So, um, but I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I pretty well did that company in. Um, so they've recorded these shows and it's only going to be a couple of weeks later that they're going to be, um, what, did you, what was the word you used earlier? Sweeten them? Yeah, just put yeah. a little sweetener on top. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have to go doctor it. Now, they've decided to add a fourth side of yeah. new studio material. Um, now, um, I'd, I'd always heard the reasoning for that was because, like we mentioned earlier in the thing, talking about the Lost Alive 2, they didn't want anything from the debut Hotter Than Hell or Dressed to Kill on the record. And then the, when they looked back at the set, cut those songs out, they went, oh. Yeah, <laughs> and well, they didn't have I, enough they material. Didn't have enough, well, I mean, you know, they, there was still, it, it wasn't enough, but they, they, they still, of course, had Take Me and Do You Love Me were in the set. Yeah. Um, Hooligan was in the set. Mm-hmm. So there's three songs. Um, they could have lengthened the drum solo, which they've cut short on Live 2. It's mm-hmm. Same with Ace's solo. Yeah. So I think they could have done it. I don't, but I think there was also, you know, from what I'm understanding, there was a contractually obligated for at least 25 minutes of new material to 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 credit it as a new kiss album right and if they didn't then then casablanca had the right to issue a greatest hits album and they didn't want them to do that without you know without the band's consent or control yeah yeah because i was about wanted, to say i was like wait a minute they they still wound up doing that about a year that, later yeah, anyway well but i think they you know if they they had to have the minimal 25 minutes, and I assume that's probably part of the rationale and reasoning for putting new material on this album, less mm-hmm. than not repeating songs. I think they had enough material that they could have filled out a, the album with I think, uh, without repeating. I think Paul brings that up in his book. Does he? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but, let's see. We're your... Uh, do we want to go by this track by track at all? I mean, what's what do we want to do here? Um... I feel like just over, I mean, on a live, we didn't really go track by track. We just kind of more or less talked about the album as a whole. Uh, so I guess really the only thing we could really do a track by track on is kind of discuss the new stuff. Well, not we can do that too. But before we even get to the new stuff, how about the stuff that was actually never performed live? Right. But well, it's on a live record. Well, that's what I was going to get to here is mm-hmm. that um, – from the information I have, they cut the basic tracks for this. They've added Tomorrow and Tonight and um, what's the other one? I'm, I'm, I'm losing my brain. Uh, Hard Luck Woman. Hard Luck Woman. Yes, yeah. thank you. 
<clears throat> yeah, because they were sandwiched right beside each other. Oh, I was I'm, just pulling it as soon as I you said "hard like woman." Down, and I don't know why. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm still. Th- I'm looking at. I stole your love. Is the you know they've they've talked about they, they recorded these at soundcheck. They did not. They recorded "I stole your love" at soundcheck. Mm-hmm. But, right. But I think that's the only thing that. What about uh, uh, I want you. So yeah, they're Cap is bringing that one up because I have a theory, and I swear it is I've a beat them, and like there's only small changes in between. The Kiss box set that came out in like 2001, there on one of the discs, there is a sound check for I Want You, and it sounds eerily, eerily familiar. Like it, like all it's missing is like the crowd noise, and maybe they like redubbed one guitar kind mm-hmm. of thing, but it sounds like the bare bone track of it. I could be wrong. Well, I Want You supposedly is one of the tracks that came from Japan, and maybe, maybe. They recorded that at Soundcheck in maybe, Japan. Maybe you know who's who. who can I know say? It, it gets so, but yeah, Kiss fans listening, it's on Spotify. You Beth, know, you don't have to find you don't have to uh, find it out there. It's right there. Beth was from the J- Japanese set as yep. well. Mm-hmm. So those are the two holdover tracks. I stole your love was allegedly, I guess, recorded in Soundcheck. Now again, who knows how much of this has been doctored mm-hmm. up? And I thought it was funny though. Uh, the reason they kept that version of Beth is because they didn't do anything to the audience for that song. The crowd just was electric. As soon as they heard that piano kick in, everyone just... (sighs) Well, that's the... that's Yeah, I think that was... You know, Japanese audiences were a little more... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then so they local. get real quiet, you know. Because yep. like, it's, it's, it's like the cheer audience. and then pay attention, cheer, yep. pay attention. Um, so they've recorded these basic tracks. See, some of this doesn't make a lot of sense to me because um, it doesn't sound. It's like if they've recorded this at the same time they're doing the studio tracks, it doesn't. It doesn't sound the same. Um, Which I wonder if that was a conscious decision to be like, let's actually <laughs> let make sure these guitar tones and drum tones don't yeah, sound maybe, exactly the same. Maybe. Right? I don't know. Um, that's one thing I've noticed about Kiss, and I, I don't know if we've t- talked about this before, is that, you know, one thing that you don't think about this when you're young, obviously, but Kiss did not have an identifiable sound. Every album no. has a different sound. You know, there's a there's a huge difference between the sound of this live album to the first live album. Big mm-hmm. difference. Um, and I mean, and I would say that theory even becomes more relevant as time goes on as we begin to talk about dynasty unmasked elder and then we get into 80s so it's like every kind of few years they do kind of have a little bit of a newer sound yeah they don't they don't have a retainable you know like you you know eddie van halen had his sound yeah Um, you know you hear like early u2 that was a real identifiable sound Um, i wonder kind of thinking on it now if the identifiable sound for kiss was each member because there was always identifiable Paul songs, even though there were a broad spectrum, you could almost kind of tell if it was about to lead into a Paul song. Well, that's a writing style, less than a recording say, style, yeah, right? But if we're talking about like you know, I'm Eddie Van about, Halen had a style, well, this he kind had of a stuff. sound, yeah, he had a I'm sound too. A sound. Okay, 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 I feel you. I, I think Ace like, and Paul, they all had the each member of Kiss had their own style, but yeah, the sounds kept but the changing, the sound was always okay, changing. Okay, I feel where you're coming from on that. Um, there is, you know, also the, uh, uh, the the there's the claim that they were inspired to do a fourth or you know a fourth side studio side. I was inspired by ZZ Top's Fandango, yeah, where it's live on one side and studio on the other. As to how accurate true that is, is is it's hard to say. But so they're in 
they're back on the East Coast. They record in the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, which was a popular concert venue back in the day. Um, and then I guess the overdubs and mixing are done at Electric Lady, which, of course, suits Eddie and Eddie, Corky. Eddie, Eddie yeah, Kramer, that's his studio. And it's done very quick. I've got it as I've got dates. It's just three days or four days. Again, just 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th Again, of just September. So this is going not to work. This is this is like three weeks after the after the forum shows. Um let's I guess let's let's just go down these uh new four was it four or five new songs? Yep. Well, is there any uh, honorable mentions from the classic songs that y'all like better than the uh originals? Hmm. Well, no. I, I, well, let's go back to that. We'll get to okay. that when we get through it all, and then we'll look at the whole album as a whole and discuss it. Okay, okay. cool. Let's just go through these new tracks real Got quick. Got All American Man, written by uh, Stanley and uh, Sean Delaney. Sean Delaney probably had more of a finger on this than Paul did, but then again, who's to say? Sean Delaney, I think, liked to claim more credit than he probably deserved, but... Mm-hmm. Then again, you never know. You know. It really did feel like Sean really did put in a good bit of work. Well, he he was more involved at this point his, in the writing process, wasn't he? He he, uh, he was brought in at one point specifically to help motivate them into writing, and, and he got to go to the Japan shows the previous spring because for the sole purpose of sitting down with those guys and and working on new stuff. Because mm-hmm. I think he claims to have basically written. The melody and the verses for the lyrics, I guess, for Rocket Ride with Ace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but of course Ace had the the riff. But let, we'll get to that. American yeah. Man, All American Man. So, uh, I like the riff in this song. This song's a killer, killer song. I mean, it's really good. I don't understand why this wasn't retained mm-hmm. as a yeah. live song. There's a uh, live video of, uh, the Kulik brothers playing this song. It's uh, Bob Kulik, who of course played all the lead guitar parts on uh, this side, other than Rocket Ride, and then uh, Slash's backing band uh, played uh, this song, and it sounds fucking awesome. It's a great song. It's and, uh, and there's killer guitar work by Bob on it, and, and yeah, well, of course he wasn't going to get any credit for it. No, not <laughs> until the '90s. You listen to it now, and it seems pretty obvious. So going back to a style versus sound, mm-hmm. Ace had his style. That's not an Ace Frehley style kind of playing. No. Uh, Killett claims that there were points where they would stop him going, uh, Ace would never do that. Go back and do it again. (laughs) And he's like, Ace wouldn't do none of this because he can't. Which I don't know that that's necessarily true. It's just Ace's style was so just so different. Yeah. So Um, I was going to save it till the end. We were talking about these four songs, but just talking about style and everything, I'll... I'll bring it up now. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere, but I have the actual MP3s somewhere on a hard drive in my room. But talking about the Lost Alive 2, someone included, quote unquote, bonus tracks on the end of the download. And they were alternate solo versions of this where it's like Bob was doing a lot more bends and a lot more kind of weird sound and stuff. And it's Bob, again, style. It sounds like him. It doesn't sound like someone kind of like took the tracks, dequalitied them, and kind of like did new solos over them. It's it's weird alternate takes of the solos. It's pretty interesting. I'll tell you what else is interesting about Bob Kulik. Everything. Well, everything, but, you know, 
he had a wig before any of those guys did. Did you say? And it was horrible. It was just as bad as any of theirs. Yeah. Uh, anyway, no, I mean, you know. Rest in peace, Bob Killick. Indeed. Yes. We're, we're ribbing. Rockin' in the USA. Everyone gives this song shit. It has a special place in my heart. Really. I, I have written down in my notes, it's D-U-M-B, but I L-U-V it. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I love this song. I don't know why. This is the dumbest goddamn song. It is so dumb, but it's but so it's fun. it's so fucking great. I think it's the guitar riff. The I think it's just, a, it just the entire it, time just real. It, it, it's, like a, it's like a bastardized Chuck Berry kind of song. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's completely stupid. And the lyrics look like he probably like was writing a German mark. life was pretty neat. He's, he's like sitting <laughs> bad on the, Paul I see back him in, sitting in the toilet, literally shitting these lyrics. <laughs> now, it's so goddamn dumb. But I love this song. I, I just too. love it. I've I, always loved it. That's the thing about the all the originals on this album. They're so silly lyric wise. But they're fun. <laughs> well, it's just a, it, the melody and the chorus and everything. It's put together really well. I mean, back to back America songs too. And talking about not knowing, you know, the full ins and outs and stuff. I want to call bullshit on this writing credit. It only credits Gene Simmons as the writer. Uh-huh. Uh uh-uh. I have a copy <clears throat> of the Vault, and there's a demo version <laughs> of Rockin' in the USA on there. Someone help Gene. But, there, there's no way the demo for Rockin' in the USA. What I heard turned into the song we have on Alive 2. They are just like, one sounds like the most like limp something ever, and the one on Alive 2 actually See, I've like, not kicks, heard the demo, so like, I can't say. I was going to say, this is kind of, to me, it sounds like it was probably inspired by, again, the Beatles back yeah. in the USSR. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that. And it's just, so it's got that vibe. But I call shenanigans on that single well, right. Well, you know, who knows? Who knows? You'll have to reach into your uh, vault after this. I may have to. Continuously, continuing with hilariously stupid lyrics. Yes. <laughs> again, love. Larger than life. <laughs> I mean, what is this? The Ballad of John Holmes? Uh, it's, it's too. His love is too much to hold, guys. Because, because it ain't about Gene Simmons. That's some, that's some self grandiose kind of. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My but love. you know what? I never knew. I, this is the kind of stuff when you're a little kid and you don't catch the double entendre. You're not picking up on this at all. Yeah. And then there's a point, and I can remember where I was and what I was doing when that point hit where i was like singing along going yeah you know you can't believe your eyes what you heard when I, oh my god <laughs> he's talking about his dick and then you think about uh, how he uses love and think about plaster caster and, and then it all opened up and i was just like son of a bitch you know I, and I was way too old, way too old to have discovered this. I should have figured this out far earlier than I did because I think I was about like fourteen. Yeah, and it just never occurred to me because I just never thought about it. You know, even with raging hormones, I've just never made the the you know, and just never made the connection. And then it was just like. No, he's talking about his uh, you know his spirit. Didn't you also have one of those with uh, what ladies' room? Ladies' room, what, as far as what, meet me? Like, so, like having one of those, like, uh, dawning on you, like, oh, that's why they want to go to the ladies' room or something like that. There was well, some song on Rock and Roll Over, I thought you also had that epiphany. Oh, I, I can't remember now off the top Cause, of my cause, head. Because mine was nothing to lose. 
Yeah. It took me a minute to fully grasp that. I think it was... Uh, Actually, since we're talking about live, I think it was that classic albums alive mm-hmm. where they're kind of do like a quick backstory of the band. And I think at that moment, that's when Gene goes, and it's, it's about, about anal sex. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, anal love. And I was like, <gasps> nothing to lose. <laughs> and then he like, and then he spells it all out. And I'm like, oh, uh oh, <laughs> I've been singing this in front of my mom. Yeah, because uh, yeah. if your mom didn't already know. Yeah, I know. She's like, keep singing it. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, just like he has no clue. <laughs> Larger than life, though. Um, honestly, and this may become a, a shock because we hadn't discussed all the songs on here. My least favorite of the studio tracks on this on this side. It's my second least favorite. Hmm, interesting. I like it. Um, it's you know, it's a, it's kind of it's a little bit different than. It your plods. standard kiss thing because it has that kind of plodding you know a lot of people seem to think that peter chris is not playing drums on this oh, he so is do you think so i think so do you think so it's super tight i mean i i think it is because well, look it, at his stuff on love gun well that's what that's where i i agree i think he does too i think if he hadn't there's because at some point uh, it, it, eddie, eddie kramer made a comment that he thought maybe that uh Anton Fig was already in the picture here at some point, mm-hmm. but that's the only time I've ever heard that mentioned. And this was cut at the same time they did the uh, the same session they did tomorrow and tonight. Mm-hmm. And I also think if you listen very closely, the beat is not consistent, which is kind of a trademark of Peter Chris. You know, he doesn't play you know a steady beat all the way through. He always he's playing a little something different. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. just go boom, bop, boom, bop. Boom. He'll go boom, bop, boom, boom, bop, yeah. boom, bop, mm-hmm. boom, 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 or something. Steady. You know, he's just he's manic the, jazz thing. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a steady beat all the way through. I think it's him. I and, really and, do. And um, I think it's the little things like uh when it's like you know uh, can't be sold, well no, and then it's the little drum fill. Yeah. That that certain little skip beat I've heard him do on other things, and it's, it's just that sounds like a Peter thing. Yeah, I I was actually debating this recently with a with a friend of mine, and he he seems to think it is not, but. And, and because of those fills. And I'm like, well, those fills to me are similar to a certain degree. I mean, not the same, but it's kind of a similar vibe as like the opening fill for Shock Me. Mm-hmm. But, but then I'll help your friend out. Think about Rip It Out. The little drum fills on that right before the solo when you, when it's doing the little walk up. Well, I don't think it's the same. But yeah. anyway, I, agree. Yeah. I think I don't think I don't think it's Andon Fig. I think it's Peter. I think Peter just, you know, people want to shit on peter for some reason mm-hmm. and you know this and is honestly uh, the only thing i feel like we can honestly say against peter is yeah he was just a bit of a prima donna but drugs can also yeah. be a, a huge like, factor yeah. in yeah. that and i don't think that he was probably as you know i think it's problematic for guys that don't generally want to deal with that stuff but mm-hmm. you know again how how often and how frequently would have a lot to do with it too because yeah you know if he had one or two meltdowns on a tour you know, it's easier to remember those one or two meltdowns. If he was doing it every single day, then I could understand they might have more of a point. But I kind of think it's probably a and honestly, the everyday thing, thing feels more of like an ace problem. I don't like, know, but I mean, at the end of the day, you listen to these bootlegs that exist out there, and you know, they're not. It's not like they're inconsistent. No. So I, you know, I don't know, but I think this is a strong track. It's it's kind of dumb, but 
you know, it's fun. It's funny. I think it's meant to be funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's big. It's big sounding for sure. <laughs> was it larger than was life? Larger oh, than boy. Life? I should have saw, seen that one coming. <laughs> huh? yeah, considering how big it is. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know. Too much to hold. Sorry. <laughs> the, the, um, cool it, solos. Yeah. But that's all, again, Bob Kulik. Yeah. Because, you know, we're at a point now where Kiss are never going to record anything, the four of them, together again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is, which is kind of really odd because, you you know, obviously you're not going to be aware of it for a long time. Um, Rocket Ride. Love the song. Another set of goofy lyrics, but God damn it, it rules. Yeah. No, seriously, I love this. I, I think one of my favorite Ace, like, um, like verse intro riffs that burn it. And da, da, da. I, I love that. And, oh. and, and actually, in, in our band, the fill ins, I I kind of lifted that style a little bit because he does a right. and it's just it's just walking your fingers up those three frets across the uh, mm-hmm. strings. And I reversed it in one of our songs, "Long Way to Go." I just went do 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 do, and it's, well, it's such a fun little trick. I, I tell you the. Again, according to Sean Delaney, this is Ace's riff, which, you know, but it's probably Sean Delaney's lyric and his idea. And yeah, because it almost yeah. feels like- Some of the lyrics don't seem like Ace kind of lyrics to me in a way, but, you know, in a way they do because it's always been his. But I don't think he would have came up with something like Lady Space. Yeah, that that feels I, I almost know, that but, almost feels Paulish, which does, would kind of send it to Delaney. Sean Delaney right. again, he's up there partnering in with these guys, and he's probably partnered sense. in in more places than he's even been credited for. Mm-hmm. But um, the phaser effect on that riff, though, is well, like you don't hear a lot of effects out of he's, Ace. He's, I think he's using a talk box on this, mm-hmm. but he's not using it in a in a in the way that you you know we've been hearing it. Mm-hmm. So you've got because it's almost like a wah, but yeah. it doesn't have that same yeah, effect that a wah does. Like almost like a cocked wah, yeah, or 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 maybe the voice box thing. He's, but it's he's kinda not give it a, doing sweet emotion. He's not doing Peter Frampton. No. He's just mm-hmm. doing. He, I don't know what he, he's still just getting. Ki- that he's probably just that still kind of, of hollow oh, tube, oh, tube there. that tube kind of quality to it. Or yeah. whatever. Honestly, kind of thinking about it. Uh, we we all watch Kiss. We we watch their stage presence. Ace when he really gets into that solo, really kind of does what we call now the duck lips kind of thing, like almost like the kissing face, the guitar face. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if the poo face. Yeah, I wonder if it was almost a thing because with Ace being into technology, if it was a thing of like just put this in your mouth and play the solo like you would, and like his natural well, mouth. I mean, the movements. riff is played that way though. Yeah, it's played that way all the way through. I was thinking more or less the solo yeah. because because the solo is where there's a little bit more of that. There's a lot of wah in that yeah. solo. Yeah, I don't know what all he's using is, but there's a lot of effect on it. And you and I agree, they, it's 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 a little unusual because Ace doesn't seem to use a lot of effects in his stuff. But it's kind of the spacey else, vibe. And something else that shows up in this song that we also don't get a lot that. I don't think can really go underappreciated. We get a fast little Peter Chris studio solo, mm-hmm. and that I think ending. that's cool. At the very end of Rocket Ride, he does like oh, a yeah, little the big fill at the end. Yeah, it, but it's almost like a little fifteen-second yeah. little drum solo. Like everything cuts out. It almost kind of reminds you of like a car jam eighty-one situation. 
And I think that's really cool because we don't get a lot of super clean Peter Chris drum solo stuff like that. Well, again, going back to what I said about All American Man, Ace doesn't get to retain this song into his live set for a long time. Nope. Mm -hmm. Ten years at least. And, and it's so, a cool live song. And this song you would think would have carried over to to the following tours. Um which we'll discuss here in a minute, but let's finish this out. Um, any way you want it. See, this is my least favorite track on the uh, original side. I w the reason it's not my least favorite is I am a sucker for Gene and Paul harmonies. And you've got Gene and Paul singing the verse. They are really good at that. Yeah. And, and that's the one thing that really always draws me in on that. Especially that it's all right. It's yeah, all right. They're it's really good right. at that. It's really underrated. Uh, it's a, it's an underrated, uh, you know, weapon in their arsenal. Mm -hmm. Now, and does it, this song stick out like a sore thumb? Yes. Well, but there's so many little things I can enjoy about it's it. It's basic to the point of being almost redundant. Yeah, and 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 so it's almost like it's it's like is this really great or is it just really boring? It's just kind of there. And it's I, just I can understand that, that line because it's done so well, and it's got mm. such you know it's got the slapback echo, which kind of harkens almost gives it a more of a rockabilly feel than it does the British Invasion feel, yeah. which of course also is a cover gives it a of solid a, gold vibe to me. We should we should I, I should mention this is a cover of a Dave Clark Five song. Yes. Yeah. But why would you follow Rocket Ride with this on the record? Well, you know, I just you wonder if they had just ran out of ideas here, but I think the original plan, and this goes back to something we talked about in the previous episode, was uh, they were going to cover Jailhouse Rock. Right. And when Elvis died, this is, you know, again, I don't know if this is a true story, but the way I've understood it is that they, when they were planning to do Jailhouse Rock, and then when Elvis died, they felt that that was a little too crass even for them, that it would seem <laughs> like they were just like you know, kind of morbidly cashing in on the mm -hmm. Elvis nostalgia and they didn't want to appear to do that. So yet. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I it, 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 cash in on nostalgia. It, oh, I mean, yeah. it would be, it would be it, you know, which is kind of odd that kiss didn't want to do anything that was going to be, you know, exploitative in any way. Right. Um, but you know, and I also wonder how much of an influence the burgeoning kind of punk thing was having uh, in, in their, you know, I mean, it, their orbits. It's, it's it's not. I don't think it's too far of a coincidence. I mean, it's a coincidence, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch for it to be a coincidence that the Ramones would cover this themselves mm -hmm. much later on. It's it's a shared influence, and it goes back to the basic. You know, the idea of a basic primal rock and roll song, mm -hmm. and you know, with void of you know solos or whatever else and, and it's i have no basis of this but my my head theory was always it was a tribute to dick clark because he was the one that put him on big big tv well you know end. it's funny when we were little kids and we would see the songwriting credit we saw d clark and we didn't know who the dave clark five was so we yeah. just assumed it was dick clark <laughs> we knew who dick clark was because of american bandstand yeah like, again, oh, look, dick clark wrote kiss a song yeah, and, and that's why i'm like sitting here looking at him like yeah yeah it's, it's the same guy and i was like oh dave dick oh no, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I don't think this is a bad track. I just think it just falls over a little bit sideways, only because it's not as strong as the other ones. Yeah. Is this better than Rocket or Rocket in the USA? 
Mm. You know, some mm. people. It's it's. I say no because I just I love rock in so the either, USA. But, but I, I, you know, it's certainly it. It has its spot, but I just, you know, now they've done they've done the cover of Then She Kissed Me, and now they've done this cover. And mm-hmm. these are obvious covers, not the covers where they've kind of slid them under the radar, like King of the Nighttime World was yeah. theirs. Yeah. Um, these are just blatant, obvious covers, and you wonder, okay, what's you know, what are they just running out of ideas here? Why, you know, we know there was material. They, you know, there's so much of these, you know, unused songs that are coming up into mm-hmm. into light now through the bootleg makes market. Sure, with the apology make, making the final decisions as to what makes the cut or yeah, uh, heavily vetting all this material. Who knows? I don't know. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, they're the, at this point, I'm sure Paul's the only one playing guitar on it. Yeah, uh, actually, it does say uh, that Paul's the only one that did uh, guitars on it, at least any way you want it. So. But you know the the harmonies are there, the songs on point, and it's you know it's just a little bit of an anomaly, and it seems kind of a weak track to close your your big live album with. But and interest, I, another interesting note: everybody that uh, has their song on the uh, record plays bass on it. Ace plays bass on Rocket Ride. Paul plays bass on uh, Any Way You Want It. An All American Man. I see. No, I didn't have All American mm-hmm. Man. But that that was kind of the thing that was happening there. Where like if uh, if it's my song, I'm playing bass on it. Like we see that more on uh, Unmasked and a lot of follow up records after that. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I will say that talking about you know a way to end you know your your second double live you know record, something else that's pretty interesting that I don't know I've I've always noticed this in songs I always get drawn in by little moments like a, a band all three of us really like uh, the Super Suckers uh, they've got a song that like right before the guitar solo there's this really cool little jazz fill and it's like that that's made me immediately love it. The way they end the song, Gene does a walk down and Paul hit or well, Paul does a walk down, I suppose, if he plays bass on this. He does a walk down and then he hits a certain broken chord Mm -hmm. that sounds so cool. And it's like you really don't hear that a lot in Kiss songs. And it it literally does like a that that goes back to, again, like I said, that kind of rockabilly vibe. Mm -hmm. It was a common kind of. Yeah. So yeah, again, but an interesting literal that, you know, note but, to leave but the then record on. The Beatles on. would do that too. They would drop. They would do that on the end of you know tag ends of songs like that. Um, I'm, one that comes to my mind immediately is um, I've just seen a face and it has the same kind of a mm-hmm. at the end. Yep. But um, so overall, let's look at this as now an overall album. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pros and cons. Yeah. Um, I would say, let's take it per side. Yeah, I think that'd work. Well, I mean, well, go ahead. What, what do you What do you think? Well, uh, first time we've got Detroit Rock City, King of the Nighttime World, rolling into Ladies Room, Making Love, and Love Gun. To whole bunch of love right there at the end with Ladies Room, Making Love, and Love Gun. Um, one of the things that I actually have heard said love <laughs> is that. Um, the tracks almost sound sped up. That was well, it's because Peter was doing so much cocaine back yeah, then. Yeah, they, they were charging. This was yeah. They started playing a lot faster, but I don't. But they're talking about like the mastering, like the tape I, is actually sped up. I don't. I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, because people were just trying to say stuff like when you listen to Detroit Rock City, Paul's vocal cadence on certain things like almost gets chipmunky instead of like his actual vocal range. I just I don't know. I don't think I never really thought that. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I can see where you say like they're I feel like they're playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, oh, they're high, definitely at a playing faster fast. tempo. Um 
I kind of like that though. I kind of like the extra BPM, you know, uh, kind of vibe with all the songs on here, especially on the this version of Love Gun, where I, especially how he ends it too. It just kind of like takes it up a notch and just gives it a whole uh, other. <laughs> especially now that we have like the whole band playing Love Gun and mm-hmm. not taking, uh, not using that uh, Love Gun vocal during uh, Ace's solo. And uh, favorite track on this side, I'd have to say Ladies Room because of the reasons we were saying right here, the BPMs. This song all of a sudden becomes a lot more enjoyable for me a little faster. Well, it's interesting, I think, to note, you know, I like to say it's interesting now because that's what Paul Stanley says anytime he's getting ready to feed you a line of bullshit. <laughs> you know, the great you thing that's that, interesting well, about kids. You know, it's like, so, uh, so you're going to have Tommy Thayer sing Shock Me? Well, you know, it's interesting. (laughs) It's like, you know, you know, he's it's like, no, it's not interesting. It sucks. It's a bad idea. Why are you doing it? But, you know, it's interesting because, and he's going to lay down some bullshit. It's self-serving. Anyway, uh, but it is interesting here to note that this, the, the, the album opens with Detroit Rock City, which was not the set opener. Yep. I Stole Your Love was the That's set right. opener. I was sitting going like, what was it? Detroit Rock City was played as part of the encore set. Yep. And it was the opener for what? Uh, Rock and Roll Over. On that tour still. I think for Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over, they, they were still yeah, rocking they were, out yeah, they uh, did Detroit Rock it. City. They opened it prior. I think you're right. And they've returned to this in the mm-hmm. order. Now, whether or not, I don't know. It, I don't think they played it in this order when they mm-hmm. played it at the. You know, no. I don't think any of this was really in order. As no, it this was is in very much set. cop uh, yeah. cut and moved around. Oh, and uh, actually, and to start the record, uh, it's the isn't this the legendary story of the announcer didn't say kiss uh, clearly in the well, vocal yeah, booth, they, so they, Gene had went in and went kiss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, well, we talked about that on the on the tour at one mm-hmm. point. They had Eddie Belandis go to a bathroom. Yeah, and do it several times. You wanted the best. You got the best, and it just it didn't hit and punctuate the way they wanted. And supposedly Gene just came in behind him and did it the way he wanted it. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. That's not that big of a deal. Um, I think though, for a lot of people, you know, that was. I know for me, like I can remember the very first time I ever heard this record. Mm-hmm. I remember where I was and what I was doing. Same, and I can mm-hmm. remember. I remember, and I think I've talked about this before. It was you know first song, Detroit Rock City. I can remember it was raining outside, and I was in my brother's room, and I could I, I understood the lyrics enough that I caught that this guy's gonna die. And when you're like six years old, that's a heavy concept. Oh yeah, you know you don't you know rock and roll's like oh boy meets girl and you know I'm in love and you think about that from your little you know six year old perspective or whatever it was. I was five, six, seven, whatever I was, and here it's like this guy's gonna die. Yeah, you know it's death mm-hmm. right up front first song and so it's just like it was it was spooky and that just added to the idea in, in that time there was so much you didn't understand or know and you had to fill in the blanks with what you thought you knew mm-hmm. so kiss was scary oh yeah for a kid that's young there was still something scary about them and of course we know they're going to deliberately soften that image but at this point in time you know it's still a, kind of a scary proposition it's like you know 
I have a proposition. That's an interesting. That's interesting though. I had a similar experience with Black Sabbath about it being uh, about uh, feeling uncomfortably scared by the content of like the lyric and all that. But, here you are now, huge Sabbath fan. Oh, I know it. <laughs> it gets left, you. It left an impression. Yeah, I mean, it gets to a point where you kind of outgrow all that stuff, and you're just like, okay, right. <laughs> and then it's like almost like it elicits an eye roll. But of course, you know, but we're you know. Fifty years after the too. fact, you can't mm-hmm. look at like anybody trying to sell any kind of satanic image without thinking Spinal Tap, man. You know? <laughs> exactly. It's like it does not, there's nothing. I can remember seeing the first time I heard of Marilyn Manson. Somebody was showed up wearing a, a it was a T-shirt, and instead of, it was the Salvation Army logo, but instead of Salvation Army, it said the Satanic Army, and I just was like whatever <laughs> whatever dude that's so weak that's done dude does that really still sell come on that's never gonna work and then a year later Marilyn Manson was huge I was like what the fuck <laughs> this guy's so, such a fucking paint by number obvious bullshit influenced by chills and apparently a lot of people yeah I mean you know whatever but um you know so we're going so side two you've got it opens with uh doesn't it Dr. Love mm-hmm. yeah Christine yeah. sixteen, uh, shock me, hard luck woman, and tomorrow and tonight. So the two the two songs that were added after the fact, mm-hmm. dummied in as live tracks. I don't think they ever played either of those songs live. Even to, although I, I've read somewhere that they did try playing hard luck woman live once or twice. I think on the sound check, basically. Tour. Yeah, I don't know. I think they played. I can't remember though, but. But the version of uh, Hard, Hard Luck Woman on this album is pretty good, though. I don't understand why they never like revisited it. Well, you know, there. I think it's included because it was a it was a hit too, and, and I think people forget that you know it's one of the three hit songs that they've had. Mm-hmm. And when I say hit, I think top twenty. I'm not sure what the Peter can't have, have more than up. one hit on stage. <laughs> well, I think it was also there to um, substitute the drop you know from hooligan mm-hmm. which that's odd that they didn't put that on the record because we've got the kissology videos well and they, those sound great they're they're gonna i i it just seems like to me that you know for all of the 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 you know we're gonna push it as a four-wheel this is four-wheel drive each member has their own thing or whatever it's like it, the more opportunities you give each guy to shine the more democratic it will feel right and you can see kind of from a you know from a obviously from hindsight you can see where maybe paula jean are kind of strangling that control away a little bit and i don't know how deliberate that was or to what end but obviously hard luck woman was included because it had been a single and it had done reasonably well yeah it wasn't a big hit or nothing but it was a song that people you know i think there was probably that kind of thought where they okay if they look at this track listing and they're like oh there's songs i know mm-hmm. you know because rock and roll all night's not on it yep so they're going to need something that you know that kind of helps sales and, and and the two the only other you know the only other two hit songs they've had was rock and roll all night and beth so beth and hard luck two of the three are peter chris songs yeah. you would think right you know so it makes sense it gives him it does give him two moments to shine on this record mm-hmm. it does and with the inclusion of tomorrow and tonight it just goes to show how much that song would have ripped live. I don't know why they never did that. It, it, it just it, it perfectly shows right there it would have worked. That they could have pushed that is a, a bigger, you know, maybe it could have been a bigger single. I don't know. That I think it was released as a single, and I think it just didn't 
it's just so good though. See, yeah, that's, that's that's my favorite on that side because again, it just it just proves that it just would have been a killer song. They've only played it live, I think, once now. They did it on one of the Kiss cruises, and well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Does that even count? Well, that's <laughs> the only barely. time they ever actually catered to their own audience. Yeah, uh-huh. if you're willing to drop a couple yeah. grand to go yeah. on, something. then they'll cater to their audience. The rest of the time, they assume that nobody there knows anything about them, and they've just come to see them blow shit up, mm-hmm. which is soleil with music behind yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, side three. Oh, actually, what was y'all's favorite on side two? Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I like the version of Christine sixteen on here. Actually, yeah, I do. I think I think we get one, Cookie Monster I Gene on that one. Christine. Yes, we do. I don't. Yeah, I never, I, I never understood where he kind of went with that. I mean, I do understand it actually where he goes more into the growly, but it was all about the immediacy of the moment in in the live situation. Yeah, uh, but so I'm not, I'm not crazy about. You know, either one of those, calling Doctor Love or Christine sixteen, in in these recorded right, right. versions, I think "Shock Me" is the strongest track on this side. Mm-hmm. You know, really oh yeah, we got the Peter solo, or no, we got the an Ace, Ace solo, solo on that solo. one. Yeah, we got yeah. Peter's on Doctor Love. I mean, uh, God of Thunder. Good God, I can't talk today. No, "Shock Me" was like one of those where, like, uh, my best friend from high school uh, had that track as a benchmark of guitar playing, without mm-hmm. a doubt. Oh, absolutely. Then on our final live side, we got I Stole Your Love, Beth, God of Thunder, I Want You, and Shout It Out Loud. Probably the most representative of the actual tour. Absolutely. <laughs> Representative? Best, yeah, yeah. See, I already said I can't talk, y'all. Best best moment of the record, though, the uh, moment where on a God of Thunder where the drum solo is over with, Gene comes back in with his vocal, and, he's, <laughs> and it cracks a little bit. Yeah, where it's well, like, Hi! Well, yeah, but that's kind of cool, because that's something they didn't doctor. They could have easily doctored that. Oh, yeah. They let it go, because that gives it that live feel. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is an odd little squeak from Gene. Though, that's, that, oh, that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's all right, though. I, I, and that I never it. has bothered me. I, I you know, But I, I think... Um, I don't know. Uh, I, the beginning of it, I don't... I don't know where that comes from. It's part, I guess, of his little blood spitting part. But yeah, yeah I think that's what it, that it, was all about. It sounds like some. It sounds like something different. It does. I don't know, but I like mm-hmm. it. I like you know. It, it's very atmospheric. I think. And, and I there's like when not Peter lot, uses the gong. Yeah, there's not a lot of that stuff that to me that's atmospheric on this record. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so out of this side, you know, I stole your love and and shout it out loud or the or the. Mm-hmm. The be- I think I Stole Your Love is really an underrated song in their whole thing. I do too. But I don't think that any of their other drummers could play it as well as Ace did. I mean, Ace, as Peter, Peter did. <laughs> I'm, I'm passing it on to you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. So, you know, I, I just, I, you know, there's such a good feel on that and they play it so well. Mm-hmm. But um, what's weird to me is there's no counts. Yeah. Right? Like when they do it live, like when they open the shows with it, it's always a sloppy front. Because oh, yeah. it's like they all come in kind of off because There's how do they know where in. they go? They're <laughs> just kind of like, I don't know if they're mentally counting. Okay, everyone, just count one. As soon as he says kiss, one, two, three, four. And, and somebody comes in at three and somebody comes in at five. Yeah. And it's just like, well, we'll just catch up. And then they get it. You know, I'm like, why would they not count? And they do this on a lot of songs. If you watch, they you do. Know, but that's all cleaned up on the live album, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Honestly, I feel like I Stole Your Love loses a little something with the faster tempo. Um, I think Shout It Out Loud shines. I think that's, yeah, that one's great, too. See, no, I think I Stole Your Love almost benefits from a a faster tempo. Yeah? Yeah. I feel like we lose a little bit of that 
lack of a better term, vibe I, of the Bama. Right, yeah. It's got, it's got it's got less of a strut though, and mm-hmm. now it's got more of a yeah, it's a more of a charge, yeah. and, and almost maybe like the strut of that song than the attack. Yeah, I, I I can see I can see that mm-hmm. absolutely. But, but shout it out loud. The reason I like this one, they're actually shouting in the chorus. They're going shout it, shout it, well, shout it out loud. In the studio, we're getting shout it. Yeah, they're shout singing it. They're singing it, which is great. It's still a great studio song, but right. in a live atmosphere with the big bombastic drums like that, and they're yelling shout it out loud. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, I wonder though. I mean, I don't know. Can you look and see what the if what if anything was a single off of this album? Because it seems to me that the idea is this is to supplant rock and roll over. Or I mean, rock and roll all night. Uh, yeah. the next big anthem for him. You know? uh, so we did get a couple singles from Alive 2. We had Shout It Out Loud, released uh, November 29th, 77, and then go. Rocket Ride, uh, released in uh, February 78. Okay. Oh, interesting. Huh. That's, right? Uh, that's funny that they've released an Ace song as a single mm-hmm. prior to Ace's success of this solo album. And now I will also say, uh, kind of jumping ahead just a little bit, I've got a 7-inch in my collection of Strutter 78, and on the flip side, I got a seven inch too. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and on the flip side is uh, Shock Me from Alive 2. Yeah, I think that's a later mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting that, that they pulled another Alive 2 song to put on the back end that's of a single somebody, for double platinum. Somebody somewhere has, I think, like archived like all the variances and yes. stuff. I'm not as, as nerdy as I am. That's one area that I just never cared to get. The seven it's inch. not that big of a deal to me. Yeah. Um, about Paul's vocal solo on, I want you at the very end. Well, that's again, that's comes from, uh, Japan. Japan. Yeah. And, uh, I never cared for that. I just never cared for this version of this song. It was just fun for me and my friends to just make fun of Paul. Whenever yeah, this well, song yeah. would come on. My, my favorite, <laughs> my, my favorite is the end. He does the, that's fine. That doesn't bother me. Yeah. I think that's cool. Oh yeah, I'm just I saying. Just, uh, I just, you know, a sing along thing. It just seems to me I'd rather have. I mean, and I really don't want it, but I would rather have more drum solo than this sing along thing in the middle of it. I <laughs> yeah, you know, it just seems like a, a waste of tape to me. But um, that's just me personally. I mean, there's probably people that that adds to that atmosphere, that laugh thing. But overall, this whole album to me is a giant step down from the sound of Alive. Um, really, it, it's. I think the effort here was to make it sound a lot larger. Mm-hmm. It's more airy. It sounds almost like it was recorded from the bathroom or something. I can see the back of the hall, maybe. You know, yeah, or, yeah. But it, it doesn't have that upfront immediacy mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Kiss Alive has. I can see what you're getting at. Sound Kiss Alive wise. sounds like it was recorded from like about the third row in the center. I mean, you know, it, obviously it wasn't, but you know that yeah. vibe. It, it, you feel like you're right, right there in the middle in of it. it, it whereas Kiss Alive too sounds like. You're li- you're standing way at the back mm-hmm. watching the whole thing. It's, that's weird though. But they were at that point where they were playing places like that. Well, they were playing places like that at live too. But it just, I mean, well, probably, I don't know. I, don't, felt, I mean, I, I guess it felt. I guess it felt kind of bigger, even though the sound was, you know, the whole idea not was quite sound, so much. It sounds very airy to me. There's I also a, don't like um, the guitars. I think I will that, agree. The guitars are a little bit more thin. Yeah. It's a lot thinner, and and. Um, I think there's an energy to this record overall, though, that I love probably more than the sound yeah, well, of the record that, itself. I was going to say, it still has, it retains a very, you know, it has that energy and excitement, 
you know, I just, I could, I, I think if it had been mixed differently, perhaps, I don't mm-hmm. know what they could have done. I think the guitars, you know, they don't sound like they're being, like, at this point, they sound like they're, and I, I don't, I don't know if this would be accurate, but to me, it sounds like a difference between they're playing through the old tube amps and now it sounds like they're playing through solid state stuff. Right. And I think I it's because you, we talk about they're not running a lot of effects, but really I think they're probably running, you know, I'm sure they like your your simple distortion boxes are new because with Kiss Alive there there's no distortion, there's no fuzz box, there's no, you know, they're Just running straight they're, marshals. they're they're preamping one amp into the other and that's how they're getting their crunch whereas now they're getting it through a gadget. Mm-hmm. And, right. And is it is a, it a difference. And I've heard I've heard this story going way back and I've, then I've read it and I was surprised to see it confirmed that you know um, Ace wasn't playing a Marshall and there's Marshalls on stage, yep. but he's actually playing a Fender Super Twin, and that's all that's mic'd. Huh? And you know, but he's probably running some sort of you know new, new what would now be a very simple, probably inexpensive distortion pedal, a Boss mm-hmm. or something. But back then, that was probably state of the art, you know, new thing, and it just so it has this sort of. But the way they've got it dialed in, it just sounds processed, mm-hmm. and and it doesn't sound as as uh, beefy and muscular. It I can sounds a little more steely that. and thin. That's mm-hmm. a hell of a revelation as a guitar nerd too, because you associate Ace Frehley with uh, Marshalls and stuff like that too. Well, I, I think that was not uncommon. I think Ted Nugent did the exact same thing. Yeah, he had those twin reverbs. So. Um, you know, I, I just, but it just sounds so so much thinner, yeah. and it sounds so much more airy. That's the best word I can come up with. Far mm-hmm. away, like yeah. you said, it's from the back. I can absolutely or, or above, see that. high above, or something mm-hmm. because you know the balcony. You, you try to, it's like they're. I think they're trying to create this sense of scope. That I think the, you're that right. Kiss yeah. Alive didn't have like Kiss Alive felt like it might have been in a small hall. So yeah, you're right to that mm-hmm. end. Whereas this is it. supposed to sound like it's this is huge. They're mm-hmm. playing the big arenas, right? Speaking of which, though, the the packaging of like how they projected, you know, how they, how big and bad they were, was part of the experience with me for this record as well. Oh yeah, and and as I kind of alluded to at the start of this, I was kind of waiting until we uh, discussed the packaging. This record was always shrouded in mystery because uh, when Mom was collecting uh, CDs, it was right as they were doing the '97 remasters with like all the new booklets and his really nice fancy CDs. So she was kind of rebuying her collection from that, but she still had some of the, the Kiss Nerds would know what I'm talking about, the silver CDs. Right. And she still had the silver CDs of Alive and only a couple of the remasters. We couldn't find Alive 2 anywhere. We went to little independent record shops. Best Buy, no one had Alive 2. Well, there, I had a friend in school, and I don't know what the relation was with their dad, but their dad just had music. I don't know if he ran a record shop or something. I remember talking to that kid and just being like, I want to hear a laugh too, yada, yada, yada. It was like the dawn of the internet, so I was like, I was listening to the 30-second clips on Rhapsody and Spotify all the time, and I was like, I got to hear the whole record. I want to hear the whole record. This kid was like, oh, my, my dad likes Kiss. He, he's got a whole bunch of CDs, this, that, and the other. And I don't know what I said to make this happen. The kid lived only a few blocks away from me. But one Saturday morning, 
gonna knock at the door and it's the kid's dad with like a sealed copy of Alive 2 like trying to give it to mom being like oh yeah I heard y'all were like trying to get the CD this that and the other and I think like we still had to pay for it that was the thing too like I got in a little bit of trouble for it like I shouldn't yeah, have done that weird. kind of thing but then who would do that what kind but, of guy? I was like here I'm gonna sell you my CD I won't come over to your house and sell it to you right yeah, <laughs> but the reason I, it, I know for a fact that happened because mom was annoyed that I did it even though I don't remember how I I even got to that point of doing it but part of the punishment was i was not allowed to have it for a month uh, but it had to sit at the bottom of the cd shelf right staring there tempting you. staring at me she put it fucking uh album artwork out everything just sitting there and i couldn't touch it for a month so oh my god the feeling of being able to finally open up that thing and it was cool they actually did the reproduction of the tattoos and everything so it's like i cracked that thing up and i was like oh oh my god we didn't even discuss that the packaging on yeah well that's why i was getting to kind of leading you to that well you know this album you know the, we didn't. I don't think we talked about the packaging of Love Gun, did we? No, no a little bit. We discussed the uh, the popper gun and the okay, uh, and the merchandise well, they're, sheet. They're starting, to, you know, they're starting to stuff these records with cool stuff, you mm-hmm. know. And that's again kind of kid centric. But I think, you know, at that age, it obviously made things more fun. It was like you know a rock and roll version of a Cracker Jack box. Mm-hmm. And if they're already doing a live two, well, live one had a booklet. Yeah, they had yeah, which was supposed to be kind of a imitation tour booklet mm-hmm. and that's what they you get in this but you know here it's the evolution of kiss i can remember this still being a relatively new album and looking at those pictures and thinking god there look at that that was a long time ago you know <laughs> yeah. when again as we've been trekking through this and really looking at the timelines it wasn't that long no you're we talking three years yeah mm-hmm. three Sweet. years also on the cover of the Evolution of a Kiss booklet, you see uh, Gene doing the uh, devil horns with the uh, thumb out, though. And he always claims that the uh, rock and roll devil horns that you see people do uh, at concerts were uh, was his idea, the whole oh, thing of the, him know, doing that, that. That doesn't mean nothing to me because, I mean... It's just fun to, po- to just like, kind of tease Gene about that kind <laughs> of shit, though. I mean, uh, he probably does feel like... I mean, he probably... You know, he, he got it from Doctor Strange. And, yeah. and so, big deal, so what? You know, to me, none of that is important at all on any level, why anyone gets caught up in that, because I'm sure that Dio doing it was completely unconscious and unaware mm-hmm. of Gene Simmons, as Gene Simmons was completely... Of course. And they were both doing it simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. It's like going back to the punk rock thing. It's like, did it start in England? Did it start in America? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It started. The fact that it happened at all is what matters. That's I still right. think that's a cool-ass photo, though, of uh, the four of them on the cover like that. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, um... But the album cover itself mm-hmm. is, it, it, you know, I think Dennis Wallach has kind of alluded to the fact that it was almost like an afterthought, mm-hmm. that they didn't have any good pictures. So he took, cropped the little pictures. You know, now it's iconic, but you look at it back then, it's kind of like, what a waste of space, you know? And I don't know the uh, photographer's name because, of course, I didn't, you know, look up that because, you know, that would have been smart to do. I wouldn't do that. Uh, but the. I had always looked at Gene on the front and back cover, and the blood always looked weird to me. Oh, because yeah. the way it was resting on his nose right. and everything else. Because <laughs> you didn't know he would be shaking his head, flinging it all over. Well, him, right? I, I knew that, but it's like I saw so many videos where it would just be almost like from like the lip line down to right. the chin. Right. I never saw it go like so much all up on his face, and I'm sitting here going like. 
they photoshopped that. They 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 added that, and especially because it was like so bright and vibrant, and like it it just seems so fake. But um, I think one of the the main Kiss uh, podcasts, the fifty of them that are out there, um, did an interview with the guy, and he explained he's like, oh yeah, I mean I brightened up the saturation, you know, yeah. so so it would really pop. He's like, but no, no, I mean we didn't draw anything on. Well, Gene's hair is also completely soaked in that same interview they explained that some like it was an extremely hot show something happened and he got like a bottle of water and doused it on himself see i i didn't know you know i think it had been speculated at one point that maybe he there was a night where his hair had caught on fire or something that could be it too i don't know but yeah he just it it he looks like a like a wet cat. Yeah. yeah, but it's so menacing. But it's so menacing mm-hmm. looking, you know, and it's like... That's like know, the most evil photo of Gene Simmons. And back then, you didn't know anything about Gene Simmons. You know, not knowing about this band was very important. Now we know too much. And it's like, <laughs> right. you can't associate that guy in that picture with the guy that we know as Gene Simmons, that arrogant... Mm-hmm. You know, powerful and attractive yeah. young man. Yeah, like it works. The family jewels, Gene Simmons. Well, yeah, we'll, get, that's, we'll eventually get to that yeah, in yeah, a later yeah. episode. That, and that's an important distinction too. But mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to that another time. Um, I will say though, all four of those little cropped individual photos, I love all four of them. They're great at each member. Looking at it now, I can't imagine that album cover being anything other than that. It's no. perfect. And of course, that gatefold. Yeah, oh, that was mind blowing. That, that's, I've got that and, poster in my room. The, I love it. And the thing is, is we know, of course, that that occurrence never happened in any Kiss show ever. Yep, but it's the greatest idea ever. But Just get the all idea your of it, it gives you the idea. You think that when you bought a ticket, you were going to go see that, and that's all it was going to be for an hour and a half or two hours. And yeah. of course, you know, it is. We just set off but, everything at one time and take a few photos. But, <laughs> and, and and it's and it's probably been you know doctored on top of that. Mm-hmm. But it's so great. Now those pictures were taken at in San Diego yep. during their tour rehearsals. But uh, it's still such, and my it's, favorite such an iconic picture. That opening, that gatefold picture is so, I mean, you know, it's cool. it's that beautiful. was it's just the, like, that. Would, that sealed the deal right there, man. Yeah. You're just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That's why I include this, like this whole, uh, this whole album, the package and everything is like the ultimate kiss experience. And, and the other cool, uh, cool thing too is like okay so yeah we get the awesome gatefold we get all these cool songs we get new studio songs we get the book we also get tattoos the, yeah the wet and stick tattoos that, what a clever idea I love that especially because they were mimicking some of the tattoos that, that the members had, had like yeah. the ace block letters yeah, and aces and, and, and Paul's, Paul's rose. rose yeah it's like that was so cool and then you had the love gun heads as options and yeah. like a Saturn looking uh, planet for like ace and like a demon head for Gene and shit like that, that there was, was just so many cool things with that that was a, that was a genius idea and I mean for whatever crass commercialism people wanted to dump on them i mean at least they're giving you value yeah i mean there's a lot of value that, in that, that record's package. the same price as everything else on the shelf you know well i think a, well, a double a, a, a double, double think, record think back was, then if an album cost 8.99 a double was like 10.99 yeah but, but and, that and double record was, was a lot of money back then man <laughs> yeah so i you know at least it was you know when i was a little kid but um so what was more impactful Alive or alive two? Well, probably That's alive one because that was the uh, that was the uh, the benchmark, or that was the one that got them over. That was the uh, the release that you know put them in the mainstream. 
Alive 2 was kind of, but Alive 2. Alive 2 that- sealed the deal. It's like they, it bookends this era that establishes them. What were the sales? I don't know. Kev, can you pull that up? I I'm not interested in the sales. I'm interested in the impact. Well, I because feel like sales also relate to impact because Alive had such an impact because it sold so well. I don't I don't think so. I think it has more of an impact because for every person that bought it, there was three more that got it or heard it through their friends, mm-hmm. saw it, knew it, it made an impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think for Kiss, that's very true because the, I think that's the, the miscalculation that Casablanca made and the band's management to steer them towards more of a adolescent market that might not have had the disposable income that maybe a, a older high school kid that had a you know part-time job mm-hmm. might have had so a lot of these kids are picking it up secondhand so kiss's record sales never really reflected in my opinion Impact, yeah the just how big they really and truly were mm-hmm. does that make sense no it makes absolutely so sense. for it, every it, every record sold there had to have been three or four more kids oh, yeah, that were picking it up on copies. the side you know little brothers like me uh, you know, kids that maybe picked it up through their babysitters, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Kid, kids you know, that somehow your best friend's their- older brother, <laughs> you went and snuck in his room and listened to it, you know. And and so the impact on that was huge. And I think probably to a degree, as important as Kiss Alive was, and to me it's the superior live album, mm-hmm. I think Alive 2 had a much greater impact. It hit at a moment where they really patched into – Again, this is their peak. I mean, it just mm-hmm. for whatever it connected in a way that, and you're going to see, you know, this spill over for. The, and, and I hate to say it, we're going to realize it's ultimately it's it's more of a fad. Yeah. But yeah, it's important and it happened and it's going to continue for at least you know the next eighteen months. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Kind of thinking on that trail you set, that is a really difficult question to answer because. If we want to look at impact, I mean, Alive really shot them into stardom. So that definitely had an impact. That that really latched onto the psyche of their fan base and really got them hooked. Alive 2, I think the only reason I want to kick back on it being more impactful is I don't think the record alone was the impact. Whereas Alive, the record alone with the tour, yada, 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 was the impact. Alive 2, that impacted because of Destroyer and then Rock and Roll Over and then Love Gun constantly lifting it up a little bit more to that point. And then as our future episodes going on with our merchandising and getting on TV, I feel like everything kind of caused it to be more impactful. Coalesced at one moment. I think if we took Alive 2 out of the picture they would have had only a little bit less success than what they had had. I don't think Alive 2 caused the amount of impact success was. I don't think it caused that. it, no. but I think it hit at that moment when... Well, well that's know, why I think Alive the, the, did it, the because they caused it. The expanded from, from a high school kind of thing to like a more adolescent thing. Yeah. And that was very important. But I agree with you. I understand yeah. what you're saying. It was the result of all the growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I like that question. That's good. Uh, two million units sold in U.S., one hundred thousand in Canada. Let's see, its Billboard spot was number, number seven. seven. Yeah, that's yeah. manipulated. We know that. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that but, but yeah, I mean, so we don't know that those sales are accurate either because they. It's still good to know the two yeah. mil. So that's not bad. But um, 
But what, again, that's probably just part of the uh, the overall buildup that Alive One gave. Well, uh, uh, that leads to, and I've already answered this myself. Mm-hmm. What do y'all feel was the better album between Alive and Alive Two? I, honestly, I, Impact and Better is a little bit different for me. I, I think Better is Alive Two. I, I think it gave a more fun experience for me. Like even even though Alive puts you right in the middle of it. It felt like Alive 2 was more of a party. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel, too. Even though I agree with uh, Russ that uh, Alive 1 sounds better, Alive oh, yeah. 2 is uh, is an experience. And not to say that Alive 1 isn't an experience. Oh, it absolutely still is. But Alive 2 was kind of, uh, you know, especially from when I was getting into Kiss as a teenager, just seeing all of that, the bloody gene on the cover, the gatefold with the fire and everything, too, all the booklets and all the little extra things. And... All of the song choices and the uh, energy that that whole uh, that every song has as well too. So uh, I, I don't know. That's just one thing that we've always and we always revisited that as opposed to a lot of the tracks on a live one. Well, here's where I'm going to zip you both because <laughs> because we talked about this at a live. A live's an iconic live album. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's maybe you know top two, three of all time. Mm-hmm. But you're both telling me you think a live two's better. A little bit, yeah. Just for like, just, just experience wise, a little and, bit, a little bit, a little bit. Just a little and, bit. and the only reason being also because we want to talk about revisionist history. I feel like Kiss has pushed Alive on the fan base well, more than yeah, Alive too. I think that's only because it did bring them to the mm-hmm. bring them to the dance. I, yeah. I, I feel like if Whereas Kiss themselves, Kiss Alive too is the dance. Does it yeah. make sense? Oh yeah, exactly. Actually, that sums up perfectly what I was trying to say. That, yeah. That's really good. I like that a lot. Yeah. But no, I feel like if Kiss themselves embraced Alive too a little bit more. I think the fan base would kind of even kind of swell up and be like, you know, it's not that bad of a record. Because what did the what did the main fan base say their favorite record is? Destroyer. Yeah. Well, what is the record Kiss pushes all the time? Destroyer. Right. right. So I, I think that the current status of Kiss is what Kiss pushes among the fan base. So I, from that alone, I, I really do still think Alive Two is the more fun record. Alive may have more hits, but I think Alive Two is more fun. Was well, absolutely a vital record i mean oh, yeah. i think that you know it really sealed the the deal for kiss and like i said and it's a perfect cycle three three records live record yeah. three three studios live record this is so. the uh, last record where it's a, a hard rocking party for like you know 99 percent of the time well, and then this is set up supposedly to give them a rest they're going mm-hmm. to tour ostensibly in support of this album they don't play anything off of it as far as the new stuff so it's, I always looked at the Alive 2 tour as really just an extension of the Love Gun tour yep. yeah. and this they took a break this came out and it's part of the, the I mean, cycle I kind of did the same thing with but uh, to me, this is Dress still to Kill and Alive yeah this is still the cycle of 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 Love Gun mm-hmm. uh, they change a few songs in this set but the, the tour this costuming the staging everything stays the same yeah it's only two months later they're back out on the road again and they'll tour straight into the spring of 78. So it's all part of their their cycle that they're already doing anyway. Yep. Um, we get some really good uh, footage from the end of the year. They uh, professionally archive the shows at the Landover, or at the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, Largo. Mm-hmm. Largo. Uh, which we knew they had the in-house system, but I think that was augmented. I think they might have hired someone else to do but stuff because they more. do they do well they do more wide shots and stuff it was to uh, it, it seemed like i read somewhere that uh the company that did the staging this uh, i think it was mcmanus 
is what it was called, McManus, McManus, I forget. They wanted to document the stage for their, you know, as a means of, uh, as a means of representation for, you know, for yeah. other acts and stuff. This is what we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Look, you know, and so th- that's why that, that show, it seemed like that wasn't as widely bootlegged as the Houston shows yeah. were, but it's, it was better. I think it was better recorded. Um, some of it was used on the American Music Awards show at the yeah. beginning of 78. But um, all this is, all, again, it's all part of the Alive 2 cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, 78, we're going to get ready to really get busy. I think the next several episodes are going to just cover that one single year. It's such an important year. It's huge. There's so much going on. Um, and we're reaching Kiss Mania at its peak. I mean, this is, I think 78 was probably the absolute pinnacle of their career. Everything that they're doing, even to this day, is built off that one year. Yep. And, 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 you know, that, that's when it, the floodgates just broke wide open and, and Kiss became all things to everyone. Mm-hmm. For better or worse. For and, better or for worse. And the, and the episodes, I feel like, are also going to get a little bit more interesting because up to this point, there hasn't been any sort of major issues. If that makes any sense, right, but like right. this is the time when we start it, seeing the divisiveness. Oh yeah, then, not yeah. even just within band members, but well, just the people around they're them. Gonna do coin, they're going to do something. They're going to do something that on this, uh, you know, on paper looks like a really cool idea, but in practice turns out to be a really bad idea to really pit each other against one another mm-hmm. in, in a competitive way. But uh, we'll get to all of that as we go trudging into 78 on the next episode of No Time to Turn. And hopefully you will join us for that. Thanks for joining us for this one. Uh, for Cap and for Alex, I'm Russ. This is No Time to Turn, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.